So why get all worried about the peril of Jews in Israel? There's no real reason for us to be concerned. That was 2002. And yes, in America, we are lucky. But we are only lucky if we cut ourselves off from any fellow feeling for the not-so-lucky Jews who are right now under the gun, so to speak. Now, even more so, in 2007. So, what a selfish definition of luck that was. No, it is no longer taboo to speak of it, to think about a second Holocaust. And many of you, uh, I wonder how many of you have read uh, Israeli historian Benny Morris's recent essay in the Jerusalem Post called The Next Holocaust Will Be Different. Have any of you read it? Yeah. Very powerful, uh, disturbing essay. Not all will agree with him, but it is no longer sacrilegious, let us say, to envision in detail uh, a way it will happen which is both terrible testimony to the state of things, yet in some ways, I think, a far more healthy response than what I came to think of as Second Holocaust denial, uh, the response of the literary editor of the New Republic and people like Tony Jude. Um, but there is an aspect of the Second Holocaust that is still unthinkable, or not very much thought about or written about, not taboo. Uh, at least in public, although you can be sure that in the inner councils of the IDF, they are thinking about it all the time. In part, this aspect is unthinkable because it's unbearable. Unbearable because it begins by envisioning that a second holocaust has happened, that a nuclear device or some other chemical weapon of mass destruction, some sort, has gone off in the midst of the Jewish state and addresses the questions that the survivors in charge in whatever bunkers remain will have to face the day after a second holocaust. And the day after that, one of those questions being the question of retaliation, its utility and justice. And this is where I'd be interested afterward, uh, after I finish and, and hear it from you. Uh, retaliation, is that justice or vengeance? Retaliation, how to decide who, where, how, how extensive. Retaliation, even when the source of nuclear devastation is not known for sure, the result of a device smuggled in by a shadowy independent terrorist group that bought the bomb from Al-Qaeda, from the AQ Khan nuclear supermarket from North Korea, where to send the retaliatory nuclear missiles, or whether to retaliate at all. But before I present you with the dilemmas of the day after, let me talk about the evolution of the discourse on the Second Holocaust, about the transition from taboo to mainstream, because I think there's a lesson to be learned from the controversy over it. My own thinking about this began while writing a book called Explaining Hitler, a cultural history and critique of Hitler explanation, one chapter of which was devoted to an account of a strange afternoon I spent interviewing David Irving the world's leading Holocaust denier in his posh London townhouse. A horrible experience, which reinforced my sense that Holocaust deniers were using their meretricious rhetoric as part of a strategy to lay the groundwork for a second Holocaust. Then in May 2002, I published a column in the New York Observer speculating for the first time about the possibility of a second Holocaust, one most likely resulting from nuclear exchange with Iran. 
use of the term Second Holocaust was in part provoked by my reading a passage in Philip Roth's novel, Operation Shylock. Any of you read that? Uh, it's an amazing <coughs> book. And, uh, uh, in it, a Rothian doppelganger who calls himself the Diasporus asserts, and I'm quoting now, the destruction of Israel in a nuclear exchange is a possibility much less far-fetched today than was the Holocaust itself 50 years ago, unquote. I found that shocking and a provocative thought. Is another Holocaust more or less likely than the last seemed to be before it happened. No one wanted to believe the world would let the first one happen. The world seems indifferent to the developing prospects of the second one. Uh, he goes on, Roth's diasporas, to propose the resettlement of the Jews of Israel from what he characterizes as the target-like concentration camp Israel has become for those who would perpetrate the second Holocaust. It is, of course, not the only possible response Roth's diaspora's resettlement plan. It is an extreme one, meant to provoke. Indeed, I found the phrase, Second Holocaust, is a kind of Rorschach, which evokes from those who hear it the deep, their deepest feelings and fears about the entire Zionist <coughs> enterprise and its relation to the diaspora. What is the real hope? Is there any real hope for the Jewish people in a world where anti-Semitism seems never to end? where, in fact, it seems always to be exacerbated and uh, escalating. I was surprised no one picked up on this Philip Roth passage in 1993 when the novel came out. But in 1993, there was a peace process. No one wanted to think it could fail. It was unthinkable it could fail. We were all subject to the American illusion that there is a solution to every problem if only people behave rationally. Alas. Not everyone in the Middle East is known to behave rationally. I'm not convinced that the belief in the police in, in the uh, peace process was an entirely naive hope. Perhaps if Rabin had lived, maybe it would have made a difference. But here we are, and it's not a good place to be. Roth's second Holocaust fa fantasy raises the question of whether the identity of Jews should have been concentrated in or defined by Israel or on the Jews of the diaspora. While not accepting the diaspora's challenge to the wisdom of a Jewish state, back in 2002, I advocated taking the possibility of a second Holocaust seriously and began speculating about the aftermath. Oh, the outcry. I couldn't help thinking of a Bernard Malamud short story in which he has a, uh, a parrot cry out, Gewalt, pogrom. Uh, nothing I've written before or since has made people as irrationally angry just by mentioning those two words. Well, perhaps my attack on postmodern literary theory sophistry in my recent book, Shakespeare Wars, uh, made a lot of people mad. But with all due respect, postmodern literary theory sophistry seeks only to deny the existence of literature, not to deny the existence of a land and a people. And in 2004, as Charles mentioned, I edited an anthology of essays by historians and scholars uh, called Those Who Forget the Past. And in my introduction, I went a little more deeply into the circumstances that led to the controversy over the words Second Holocaust and some aspects of the aftermath. The context then was the Second Intifada, an incessant uh, suicide bombing. But it wasn't the threat 
of Palestinian terror that led me to use the taboo phrase. It was reading Roth in the light of a chilling speech by Iranian Ayatollah Hashemi Rasfanjani, a man who is now described in the media as a moderate or a moderate conservative of the world, as opposed to the uh, real genocidal radicals such as the current Iranian president. And yet, in his 2001 address, Rasfanjani said something more radical than Ahmadinejad's wipe Israel off the map. And by the way, uh, a word on that, wipe Israel off the map. You know, it's been disputed. A lot of people have said it's been mistranslated. It's only meant as euphemistically, uh, or it's, all, it's only meant as a, uh, uh, a metaphor. Uh, it's meant as a uh, wipe the political boundaries of Israel off the map and replace it with Tony Jude's binational state. Uh, I think we could probably all agree that uh, wipe Israel off the map was uh, uh, that we know what uh, Ahmadinejad meant when he said it, uh, however much those who don't wish to look carefully at things uh, want to take it. But in any case, um, uh, let us leave Ahmadinejad and Tony Jude and the binational state uh, behind. Uh, for all we know, they are both sincere believers in a Pangolossian kumbaya version of Jews and Palestinians living side by side. Instead, let us return to Hashemi Rasbanjani, who said something more explicit, more specific, non-metaphorical. He said that Iran would not shrink from a nuclear exchange with Israel because in such an exchange, it would take only one bomb to destroy Israel. One bomb, and these are Rasmanjani's words, it would be, quote, nothing left on the ground in Israel. Israel and the Jews therein would be destroyed while, Rasmanjani said, Iran would suffer only, quote, damages, unquote, from an Israeli retaliation. Heavy damages. Millions dead, perhaps. But Israel would be gone forever, and there would be more than a billion Muslims left. Many of them, alas, who would welcome the death of the Jewish state and even the Jews within it. Don't take my word for it. Uh, read the translation of radical Islamic media, what they're saying in the mosques and uh, Islamic media in the, uh, most of you are probably familiar with the Middle East uh, Media Research Institute and its uh, translations of what's being actually said in the Arab world. It's chilling. Um, but nothing left on the ground is one of the milder things. Uh, you could call it rhetoric, or who are we kidding? Uh, but what it did, in conjunction with the growing cult of suicide bombing martyrdom, was cast out on what the literary editor of the New Republic called Israel's magnificent deterrent, that is, its nuclear retaliatory arsenal. If a state or a terrorist group was willing to suffer the death of a martyr, of massive retaliation from Israel in order to destroy Israel, then Israel in effect no longer had a deterrent, or rather Israel would have to reconsider, reconfigure, or vastly expand its, its retaliatory threat with still no guarantee that it would uh, be sufficient. Um, <coughs> there was another factor which cast doubt on Israel's nuclear deterrent, non-state terrorism. Terrorism without a return address, a dirty nuclear bomb, chemical weapon, 
any kind of bombs smuggled into Israel by a non-state terrorist front group content to die in the process. Who do you retaliate against uh, in a case like that? Everyone? Anyone? What do you do? Uh, and so a second Holocaust cannot be deterred with the degree of confidence that Cold War deterrence offered America. Not that that was an extremely high confidence factor. I, mean, I think we escaped luckily with our lives. Um, deterring those who seek suicidal martyrdom is a far more difficult problem. The threat of death is no threat to those who want to die, who want to be martyrs. They are not the rational actors of Cold War nuclear theory. But nobody wanted to hear that when I wrote about it in April 2002. <coughs> now things have changed. The literary editor of the New Republic recently signed a statement explicitly warning, among other things, of the perils of, yes, he used the words, that the statement used the words, a second Holocaust, those precise two words. Was this a sudden attack of ethnic panic on his part, or a belated recognition of reality? Of course, his was not the only evasion of the question. At the time, I found the modes of evasion of Second Holocaust denial, you might call it, to be uh, in interesting and instructive about uh, Jewish willingness to face reality. It was what I came to call evasion by geographic displacement. Distinguished NYU professor Tony Jude, he of the brilliant plan for a binational state, for instance, Look how well binational state is working out in Iraq. Um, when I appeared on a panel with Tony Jude on uh, the Charlie Rose Show to discuss the question, he misrepresented the problem by declaring fiercely that the thought of a second Holocaust in Europe was nonsense. Something, uh, for a scholar to engage in such shamefully disingenuous discourse is, alas, not uncommon, but particularly repellent coming from that quarter since Professor Jude was soon to disclose his own plan for wiping Israel off, off the map, his binational state. Uh, and since he has subsequently called the state of Israel an anachronism. Uh, and then there was the not very bright New York Times columnist who was so confused or fearful, he wrote that I was talking about a second Holocaust in America. And then when I called him up to complain about this, he said, well, even if there were a Holocaust uh, uh, via nuclear weapon in Israel, it wouldn't really be a Holocaust, because a Holocaust involved rounding up people. Um, and the nuclear weapon wouldn't, uh, it would kill as many Jews, but wouldn't have the rounding up. So this was his way of avoiding the question. Um, it was as if these three grown men uh, were so overwhelmed by a childish fear, dare I say panic, at facing the possibility, they had to deploy their own versions of denial, displace it to somewhere else, to Europe, to America, to cloud cuckoo land. Uh, they didn't have to fear it that way. This was second Holocaust denial. I was reminded of their willed blindness recently when a photograph appeared of the current Israeli defense minister gazing sagely into binoculars at the Lebanese border have you all seen that photo? Are you aware of this? Um, gazing through binoculars which had lens caps on them. Um, I think a similar process, alas, has gone on with facing the reality of what the Jewish state uh, is threatened with. 
I think it's time to remove the lens caps. It's not easier to stare into this particular possible future across that, the border into that kind of horrid realm. It's not a pretty sight, but I wonder if we can afford not to look. Iran will soon have nuclear weapons. Pakistan already does. And Pakistan is probably one bullet away from becoming a nuclear-armed Al-Qaeda state. North Korea will soon have them for sale. Loose nukes from the former Soviet Union are already on the market. Read the new edition of Graham Allison's Nuclear Terrorism. Read it and weep. Increasingly in mosques and media throughout the Middle East, thanks to the tireless translators of, mem of memory, um, we know that a certain strain of radical Islam preaches as a religious duty the extirpation of the Jewish state, and some, as in the Hamas charter, the extermination of the Jews. There are a billion and a half Muslims in the world, five or six million Jews in Israel. What do you think the odds are that Israel will not be wiped off the map, pushed into the sea, however one expresses it, in the next half century? But you're not allowed to say that. Uh, already, psychological terror is causing many in Israel to leave. Um, and can you imagine living uh, in a state where you and your children are constantly threatened? Not, no longer, not just by suicide bombs, but by, you know, a, a, a repellent madman who uh, constantly makes threats of nuclear terrorism. Um, alas, we are imprisoned by the American dogma of optimism. All problems must and will have a solution. But maybe this one won't. I think we have to face that possibility. Here's how Benny Morris, the Israeli historian, described it in a piece in the Jerusalem Post. Um, and it was no coincidence, I think, that he uh, published this piece shortly after the Iranian Holocaust Deniers <coughs> Conference. There is a connection between Holocaust deniers' rhetoric and the idea of the second Holocaust, which I will get to in a moment. But first, let's listen to Benny Morris. He said, the second Holocaust will not be like the first. The Nazis, of course, industrialized mass murder. But still, the perpetrators had one-on-one -on -one contact with the victims. They may have dehumanized them over months and years of appalling debasement before the actual killing. But still, they were in eye-to-eye, eye-in-ear contact, sometimes in tactile contact with their victims. Second Holocaust, Benny Morris goes on to say, will be quite different. One bright morning in five or ten years, perhaps during a regional crisis, perhaps out of the blue, a day or a year or five years after Iran's acquisition of the bomb, the mullahs will convene in secret session under a portrait of the steely-eyed Ayatollah Khomeini and give President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad the go-ahead. The orders will go out, and the Shihab 3 and 4 missiles will take off for Tel Aviv, Yeshiva, Haifa, and Jerusalem, and probably some military sites, including Israel's half-dozen air and reported nuclear uh, missile bases. Some of the Shihabs will be nuclear tips, perhaps even with multiple warheads. Others will be dupes uh, to draw attention away from anti-missile uh, batteries. With a country the size and shape of Israel, Probably four or five hits will suffice. No more. No more Israel. Uh, a million or more Israelis in the greater Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Jerusalem areas will die immediately. Millions will be seriously irradiated. No Iranian will see or touch an Israeli. 
it will be quite impersonal. So saith Benny Morris. Not me. Uh, you can read it in, online in the, uh, on the Jerusalem Post website. Uh, what surprises is that we are so far beyond taboo, we are now to the point of assigning a philosophical hierarchy of Holocaust possibilities, personal and impersonal. Is one more authentic, to use the language of modernism? To Benny Morris, Hitler's Holocaust was both vicious and personal, face to face. The next one, or the one he envisions, the one he chooses to assign to only to Iran rather than, say, Al-Qaeda or some as yet unknown splinter terror group on the other hand, quote, will be quite impersonal, he concludes. In other words, it will be much easier to accomplish, all the more likely to occur. The banality of impersonality, you might say. Was no, as I say, it was no accident that Morris published this in the aftermath of the Tehran Holocaust Deniers Conference. It crystallized the way the rhetorical strategy of Holocaust denial had been enlisted in laying the groundwork for a second Holocaust. It's a scenario I began thinking about after the uh, Iranian Holocaust Deniers Conference demonstrated the link between denial of the first and preparation for the second. A word about the evolution of the rhetoric of Holocaust denial. As someone who studied it with fascination ever since that encounter with David Irving and a subsequent discussion with the philosopher Beryl Lang on whether Holocaust denial is a new step in the evolution of the history of evil. Lang said no, he thought Heidegger's Holocaust indifference was worse. After all, most Holocaust deniers know it happened and are glad it did. But their public stance is that it would be wrong. They wish to exculpate Hitler from such, what they say in public anyway, is a crime, however much they long for it. Heidegger, however, felt nothing, said nothing. Heidegger had something to say about everything in the world, but somehow this escaped his notice um, while he was uh, 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 a Nazi party uh, official, purging uh, non-party members and undergoing denazification with the uh, help of Hannah Arendt. Um, read Berlin's book on Heidegger and the Holocaust for uh, 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 a study of Holocaust indifference. Um, but um, as far as Holocaust denial, I'm sure you know that it began with a certain far leftist sect uh, in France centered around a bookstore called The Old Mole. At first it seemed to me it was divided between those who knew it happened and were just using denial to twist the knife and, because they hated Jews, and those who were genuinely deluded. Uh, recently, though, Holocaust denial has undergone a number of variations. There's Holocaust minimization, in which uh, they spend their time diligently trying to reduce the number of Jews uh, killed and uh, claim that uh, some millions were killed by typhus epidemics and the like, and only a few literally murdered. Um, and then there's the uh, Holocaust exploitation allegation. This is the Norman Finkelstein position. Um, uh, he, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with him, he regards that uh, any memory of the Holocaust as being meretriciously used by Zionists to support the existence of the, uh, the Jewish state. There's no really good reason to uh, remember it. Finally, uh, well, semi-finally. Uh, there's something I, I've come to call, I think most insidiously, 
Holocaust inconsequentiality. It's my phrase for the kind of Holocaust denial deployed by sophisticated people, not drooling anti-Semites, usually, I think, unwitting of how historically opaque they're being. Holocaust inconsequentialism uh, is insidious because, well, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. Uh, was a writer in the New York Times magazine who scolded posthumously Menachem Begin for something he said about the Holocaust in the aftermath of the Israeli attack on the Iraqi nuclear reactor in the early 80s, the attack that perhaps put off a second Holocaust for a few decades. The writer scolded Begin because in describing his reasons for the Iraq mission, Begin said, thought of the million and a half children who died in the Holocaust. No, uh, and, and he, he just wasn't going to allow that to happen again. No, the writer in the Times Magazine scolded Begin. Uh, you shouldn't have mentioned the Holocaust or those children. Uh, it was unnecessary. It was inflammatory. Just because one dictator declared he wanted to commit mass murder and went ahead and did it, one shouldn't learn any lesson from it, one shouldn't be influenced by it, one shouldn't even speak of it when dealing with another potential mass murderer's genocidal capability. Uh, now, one can depend too much on history for lessons, but to learn nothing <coughs> from the Holocaust, to not mention it in, uh, or consider it in uh, deciding one's contemporary policy, to not allow it to have any influence, it sacralizes it somehow, separates and removes it from history entirely. Holocaust inconsequentialism says, yes, it happened, it just shouldn't matter to us now. The past shouldn't affect how we act in the present and future. No consequences to the Holocaust. It's a kind of denial. But, and here is the juncture between the rhetoric of Holocaust denial and the prospect of the second Holocaust that I laboriously insinuated into the title of my talk, um, the uh, rhetoric of uh, rhetorical strategies of Holocaust denial and the prospect of the second Holocaust. Um, Holocaust denial has now got a focus. Uh, it's become a way of delegitimizing the state of Israel and legitimizing its destruction. The Tehran Holocaust Conference revealed this nakedly. Uh, it illustrated how the various strains of Holocaust denial have merged into a single-minded purpose to make it seem that the Jewish state was founded on a lie, uh, that uh, the Holocaust was fabricated to guilt-trip the West into giving the Jews lands that, uh, of course, they never had done before, belonged to the Arabs, perpetrated the idea that the only reason the Jewish state came into being was essentially a Jewish trick, the fake Holocaust. And therefore, the undoing of the Jewish state would be in itself no tragedy, but rather perhaps even some kind of justice. Now, I don't need to tell you how fraudulent this rhetoric is, but the point is that Holocaust denial now has a focused target. It's, just, it's not just a way of twisting the knives uh, and allowing anti-Semites to uh, make Jews suffer once again. Um, it's, uh, um, it has a deliberate purpose, and that's why it was no coincidence that it was held in Tehran and now has the enabling empowerment 
of a uh, powerful, soon-to-be nuclear state, but why its persistence, Holocaust denial, and its appeal. I think it has a subtle dog-whistle uh, appeal to the ears of European culture, a culture that still labors under the burden of shame for its complicity with Hitler. Glorious European civilization nonetheless gave birth to uh, a Holocaust in the most educated, civilized state it had produced in Germany, and enlisted the voluntary aid of every single nation in Europe, except perhaps <coughs> Portugal. Uh, uh, when I, uh, I wrote recently uh, about the emblematic attack of a Holocaust denier on Elie Wiesel, the emblematic Holocaust survivor. Are you familiar with that? Um, uh, you probably read about it, but uh, it seemed to me it received very little coverage. Uh, but nonetheless, it suggested to me, it symbolized the way Holocaust survivors are an unwanted reminder of a past the West would like to deny, even if they, most of them anyway, know that they can. Uh, when I spoke to George Steiner uh, uh, on this question, he said that the Hitler's Holocaust removed the safety net. What he meant was the safety net beneath which our appraisal of the depths of human nature, uh, uh, a stopping point. Uh, after the Holocaust, there was no safety net. There was no bottom to the depths of human nature that he revealed. Um, and uh, we don't want to, or people in the West don't want to uh, acknowledge this. Um, and I think you can see this in the half-hearted efforts of the world community to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons, which they constantly are threatening the state of Israel with. Um, and uh, so these half-hearted efforts, I think, may have a darker side than mere ineptness and weakness. Um, but let me turn now to what will, I think will be the most controversial aspect of my talk and the one that I'd be interested in hearing your reaction to. Question of the day after. What if the haters and the Holocaust deniers and the Hashemi Rasfanjanis and the Ahmadinejads and the uh, Al-Qaeda people get their way? Uh, what if it happens the way Benny Morris describes it? Then the answer, I suppose, so some might want to dispute me, and I'd like to hear your voices if so, the question is relatively easy. Nuclear retaliation against Iran. Or is it easy? Even in the Cold War, some suggested once a deterrent fails, there's no point in using it uh, for retaliation. In other words, if we can't prevent a first strike, uh, what is the point of killing tens of, hun perhaps hundreds of millions of civilians out of revenge, retaliation, justice, what do you call it? I don't know the answer to this. Um, uh, uh, but I do know, I spoke to a reporter I know who spends a lot of time talking to Israeli defense and intelligence officials, uh, the people who will be in charge of the question of retaliation. Um, and uh, he told me there's no doubt, at least among those in charge of retaliation, that if re deterrence fails, there will be retaliation. The question is, will it be limited? 
will become, uh, or will it become known as, uh, become what is known as the Samson option, bringing the entire Middle East, perhaps uh, setting the entire world aflame. Uh, he also suggested there was no way a surprise attack could destroy Israel's deterrent power. He gave me the example of the way the Isaiah scroll and the shrine of the book uh, was protected, well, initially anyway, was put in a kind of well that was designed in a case of emergency to retract far beneath the ground in a hardened site protected by uh, yards of layers of armored steel plates strong enough to withstand a nuclear blast. If they're going to do that for the Isaiah Scroll, he says, they'll do that for their nuclear retaliatory rockets. And then there are the three Dolphin 800 class submarines, which the Israelis bought from the Germans, yes, the Germans, in the late 90s, which are now or will, will soon be equipped with nuclear weapons. Uh, submarine-launched ballistic uh, missiles. And submarines are the, la are the deterrent of last resort because there is no way of reliably finding and destroying them in a first strike. But what if a second Holocaust is not the result of a nation-state attack, but of a smuggled-in nuke by some shattery, shadowy terrorist group? Then who or what is there to retaliate against? Would retaliation in itself the death of tens or more hundreds of millions of civilians, who knows, perhaps be justified if the deterrent purpose of the, uh, uh, would it be justified if, if the retaliatory, uh, uh, the deterrent purpose of the retaliatory weapons have failed? <coughs> this was, again, during the Cold War, much debated. I, I spent a lot of time studying Cold War nuclear mutual assured deterrent theory uh, and in nuclear strategic circles, uh, there was always the worry that uh, once a first strike occurred, a president would decide that, uh, well, there's no point in, uh, in killing tens of millions of civilians. The retaliatory weapons are not pinpoint weapons. They're necessarily city-destroying weapons. Um, it's a terrible choice. Would anything be gained by Israeli massive retaliation? Would it prevent, would it be done to prevent a third Holocaust? Uh, would it be done so that a second Jewish state could be protected? Uh, would there, should there be an attempt to create another Jewish state or would a second Holocaust be the final argument in a way against concentrating Jews in one place? God forbid any of this should happen, but alas, it could. And yet one senses a new taboo against speaking about this. I sense this when I asked three scholars at the Jewish Theological Seminary to address this question before I came here to speak to you about it. I wanted to draw upon I, they, uh, their wisdom uh, they were steeped in Jewish lore on revenge, retaliation, justice, the fine differences between them, etc., etc. I asked them by email, uh, what if they were commanders of one of the Israeli retaliatory submarines with the power that submarines have because of the difficulties of post-war underseas communication to decide whether to launch or not to launch retaliation? Would they use their weapons in the event of a second Holocaust? What did Jewish wisdom and morality say? 
have been directed to them by someone who said they were experts on the Jewish literature and commentary on questions of revenge and retaliation. You might recognize their names. I promise not to use them. But none of them wanted to touch the question. One of them actually wrote to me in an email that in asking this question, I was actually asking something that was indeed <coughs> something new under the sun. Uh, those were his words. Something new under the sun. In other words, he was saying nothing in the Jewish past, nothing in Jewish wisdom uh, could cast light on such a horrible decision. Something new under the sun. That's why I was gratified by the invitation to this seminar. So I could ask you about this question, about the day after, about this something new under the sun, about the question of retaliation. I feel it has to be discussed. I mean, I hate to ruin your day by asking you to. I hate to discuss this subject at all. Uh, but it seems to me that there's a lack of discussion, that the lens caps are on the binoculars. Um, and so I will be grateful to hear whatever you have to say about this. And thank you for listening to this. It's a very good question, and, and one thing I didn't want to do is to make this talk an argument for preemption, you know, um, because I think it's inevitably going to be catastrophic for both sides, you know. Uh, I don't think it's an answer. Uh, it may put off uh, perhaps Iranian nuclear development for some years, but it may accelerate the desire for other non-state terrorists to uh, to use nuclear weapons uh, on Israel. I'm, I, I'm not sure what the calculus is, uh, but I feel that I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I just feel that, uh, you know, obviously, if, you know, there's a warning that in 24 hours, you know, Iran is going to uh, launch nuclear weapons, okay, preempt. But do you preempt now? Do you preempt when they uh, know they have nuclear weapons? Do you stop it? Do you, you know, do you, do you cause hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of casualties by doing so? <coughs> I don't know. I mean, you've asked a really important question, and I, I, I wish I had a good answer for it. I just resisted. I wish um, I had one, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I would like to ask a question. Yeah. You mentioned, this is a, sort of taking a, a small section of what you outlined, um, that some weapons could be smuggled into Israel. The type of weapons that could be smuggled in, could it really create a holocaust or could it really wipe out huge amounts of the population or could it just, just in quotations, is a just crazy question in a way, but could it just cause, say, massive damage but not a holocaust as such? Well, I think there are a range of things that such weapons can do. You read Graham Allison's Nuclear Terrorism, um, Yes, a small dirty bomb would only cause tens of thousands of deaths. Uh, you know, these bombs are not huge. Um, 
several could be brought in from several different directions at the same time and uh, the attack coordinated. I, I, I don't think that, uh, well, I think, yes, it's possible that there will be only a small scale attack. It's also possible that the attack will be larger. You can't rule that out. I mean, that's not somehow uh, comforting to me anyway, the idea that, well, maybe it'll only be a small nuke um, because if a small nuke can be smuggled in, Several small nukes can be smuggled in, or one or two large ones. You didn't mention uh, prevention. The only slightly optimistic thing you said was 10 years ago things looked like they could work if Rabin had lived. And so let's pursue that for a moment. What, what is your scenario for another well, Rabin emerging? Look There's the not one there now, I know. Yeah, look at the facts on the ground. I mean, uh, you've read the Hamas Charter, right? You have. And you've read the words that call for the extermination of the Jews. Um, and you know that Hamas is uh, a ruling majority in Palestine. So uh, you have a peace process with uh, people who say they want to exterminate the Jews. Um, will they change their minds if you give them some territory? Um, I just uh, wish, you know, that I could believe that some peace process would result in, the, uh, in this. But I think even if you had your ultimate ideal peace process, I mean, you know, even during the, uh, the, the Rabin, the Arafat peace process, uh, uh, the Palestinians were saying in Arabic that this was just the first state, uh, stage of driving the Jews into the sea. Um, I, I, I don't think anyone uh, now would, uh, would say that uh, Ar Arafat was an idealist who really wanted to stop at the Green Line. Um, so, you know, I would love to believe that a peace process could prevent it, but, you know, there are terrorist groups who, uh, no matter what document is signed by what entity uh, of the Palestinians, uh, will see that as a betrayal by the Palestinians, and will be even more, have even more incentive to destroy Israel because they feel, will feel that, that the Palestinians have betrayed the cause, and in fact, uh, you know, by making uh, a peace with the Jews, uh, you know, deserve to die with them. Um, it's a uh, Alas, if you read the rhetoric of uh, a certain strain of radical Islamist uh, and uh, terror group leaders, this is what they say uh, to their people. So, you know, I, I wish I could be comforted by the idea that uh, a peace process would work. But, uh, you know, the Palestinians elected Hamas, uh, they know it was in the charter. Yeah, just as a footnote, this as a coincidence, our newsletter tomorrow will come out, and we actually we're printing the Hamas charter for those who should read. Yeah, I have the two main comments about the talk. The empty attack doesn't uh, have to be nuclear attack. True. And uh, we learned lately that uh, there are weapons that uh, can penetrate uh, you know, big bunkers and uh, you know, such facilities. So I don't, I don't really think that uh, Israel should look at it as only the, you know, the, the doom day, you know. It, it can also be a military well-calculated uh, uh, event. 
But uh, well, let me address that before you. You said you have two points. That was the first one. Um, um, I think that um, the Israeli attack might not be nuclear, but it will be an attack on nuclear facilities. And when you blow up nuclear facilities, um, it's very likely that you spread nuclear radiation uh, for uh, enough to irradiate and kill X number of people, a large number of people. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess maybe that's the best possible solution, military solution. But I'm not sure that it's going to be something that is going to be a lasting solution because Pakistan already has the bomb. You know, Musharraf is hanging on by his fingernails. You know, Pakistani intelligence (ISI) is basically Al Qaeda. Um, you know, <coughs> Musharraf goes. Al Qaeda has nuclear weapons. Um, so, what are you going to do? Then preemptively attack Pakistan. Um, so, anyway, you had a second point. True, and then uh, my uh, other comment uh, actually supports uh, your horrific uh, scenario uh, because you know for many many years people uh, had that uh, opinion that uh, the fact that there are holy sites for Muslims in Israel is in a way uh, some kind of an insurance policy. Yes. But lately uh, in the Iraq war uh, you actually saw that uh, these like holy sites, uh, whatever, it's a very ancient mosque and very, you know, famous mosque. It doesn't really stop anyone. You, you know, it's, it's a good point and I always, for a long time, I too sort of hung on to that as an insurance policy. But, you know, talking to reporters um, who, uh, you know, have spent a lot of time on the ground in Israel and talking with Israeli defense officials, and in, in a way, what they say is that um, uh, Al-Qaeda doesn't care about the Palestinians. Al-Qaeda thinks the Palestinians betrayed the, the Islamic cause by entering into negotiations with the Jews anyway. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, you know, one terror scenario would be for uh, some terror group to say, we have a bomb in Tel Aviv. Uh, you Israeli Arabs have two weeks to leave the country. Um, you know, uh, what's going to happen then? And maybe it's a bluff. Maybe it's real. Uh, I don't think they, they even care about. I don't. I, I I tend to agree. It's hard to believe, but you know, it's a, maybe even more pessimistic than me. Realistic. Michael. Yes. Um, about your question of the day after yeah. scenario, uh, you seem to be looking at in terms of response to the action that has occurred. And I would suggest that you could also look at it in terms of react or response to prevent additional actions. So in, in two uh, ways. One is with regards to the Jews around the world. Uh -huh. uh, because. I don't know if it's really known who blew up the uh, Jewish center in, in a community center in Buenos Aires, if it was Hezbollah, if it was Iran. Right. But I've read some of the writings of Khomeini, which yeah. were clearly anti-Semitic, so that if there's a hatred of Jews in the Iranian leadership, it wouldn't stop with Israel. So that's one point about the usefulness of retaliation to prevent a similar kind of 
uh -huh. uh, attack on Jews throughout the world. Plus, it's not just about Jews. That a, a nation that would take action to wipe out another nation is probably a nation or the leadership of that nation that would attack and wipe out other nations, whether it's Sunni enemies or if Israel is the little Satan, then the United States is the great Satan. So I think you should look at that day after scenario in terms of what it would mean for the future of Jews around the world and other nations around the world if Iran were to, in effect, get away with it. So you would be in favor of uh, retaliation against Iran, and I can see your, your argument. I, you know, my, my dark side says that uh, it's, you know, there's a, a terrible kind of blame thing that goes on with Jews, and somehow Jews would be blamed, you know what I mean, for uh, uh, even after this. And, and um, But, but I, I, I see your point. What would you say about a, a non-state uh, terror attack that, uh, who, who would be retaliating in that case? The intelligence often kind of eventually leaks out about who is behind these things. Uh, and uh, so I don't know that a retaliation would have to occur immediately. But if it did eventually come out, that it could be traced back to a particular player. I mean, I think that's an interesting question. The retaliation does not have to be immediate. It is something that you know, uh, could be held over the heads of the world. Or, or one thinks that you know, uh, Israeli intelligence or uh, in, in some way has communicated to the Arab capitals that uh, uh, it doesn't matter to us whether it's non-state. Um, if, if you permit uh, uh, a nuclear attack on Israel by non-state, we will assume it came from you. I mean, that's perhaps one way of bolstering deterrence, but I think you make an interesting point. Yeah, I have a question about your assumption that uh, Rav Sanjani is one of the mullahs who has an ironclad control over the society in Iran. I was a dean in Iran for four years in the late 70s, just before Khomeini arrived. And so I was familiar in a marginal way with false mullahs, illiterate mullahs, as opposed to well-educated mullahs. And so my question is, when you say a round table of mullahs can make the decision to go ahead and strike... That was Benny Lawrence. I was quoting. Okay. But what is your feeling about that option? You know, my, my feeling is that... Um, if the survival of Israel depends on our hope that the nice mullahs will uh, prevail over the not so nice mullahs, uh, it's not a very powerful confidence building feeling um, that, uh, uh, in fact, I think the development of suicide martyrdom, uh, the ideology of suicide martyrdom, does change deterrence. Even if Rastanjani is not ruling right now. Um, he, uh, the statement he made um, calls into question uh, the certainty of deterrence because, in effect, it says uh, there are at least some people in Iran who would be willing to sacrifice X number of people in Iran to destroy Israel on behalf of the Muslim world. They would be martyrs. They would. Uh, they would go to heaven, um, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I think you're absolutely right that uh, you know Rasanjani is not the only mullah, um, and uh, that his uh, the people who think like him are not the only ones uh, who are in charge. But certainly, a significant faction thinks that way. And if I were the IDF, I think uh, I think they would take that into account um, in terms of their certainty that mere possession by Israel of nuclear weapons is going to deter another nuclear armed state. <coughs> yes, I look around the room and I'd like you to comment. What do you think of the fact that the average age in this room is at least 65? <laughs> oh, you all look very young to me. Um, I don't know, what do you think? Uh, well, I think that, uh, that the Jews uh, both of the Jews in this community don't care about this problem. They're not here. It's, it's a, a chilling statement. Um, everyone think that's true? Uh, I, uh, I mean, look, yeah, I guess if you're younger, you, I guess if, you know, if you're younger, so what, what do you think about I, I, I suppose, I, I think there is a kind of will blindness uh, to this, you know, who, you know, we're the luckiest Jews in history, you know, uh, says the editor of the New Republic, the literary editor of the New Republic. Uh, and, you know, if one is happily raising a family in America, you know, it's a bummer having to think of uh, those Jews in Israel and their plight. You know, we're doing fine. I'm all right, Jack. You know, all that kind of thing. Um, and so I think he makes a good point um, that, uh, Perhaps it's not something that uh, 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 there is a kind of denial uh, going on. Uh, since I would assume most of the world assumes the certainty of an Israeli counterstrike, would not a discussion of the desirability of a day after counter-strike actually reduce deterrence? That's a very good point. Um, uh, you know, uh, that, uh, it, this was, you know, a point that was raised during the Cold War uh, when people questioned mutually assured destruction, you know, uh, and the answer then was, well, maybe it should be more hardwired into it, a strange love situation where, uh, you know, it didn't depend on a hesitant, trembling finger to press the button, um, and therefore deterrent would have more credibility. But then you're subject to uh, uh, in, uh, in accident, mistaken signals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It could destroy the worldwide state. But you know, I I agree that uh, that is it's 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 a factor that's that's worth considering. On the other hand. Um, to not, well, it's funny, I, you know, when I brought this up with my friend, the reporter was like, he, he's in and out of Mossad offices all the time. He said, you know, don't worry, you know, no one's, they're going to retaliate, you know, uh, you can discuss it all you want, they're going to do it, they're, they're going to take, you know, they, they've decided, we're not going to go quiet at this time. Um, and uh, it's a sort of, uh, you know, fundamental principle of their worldview. So, I don't know. But the desire to use a Yiddish phrase, beshrai me, mm -hmm. 
may not stem from a lack of desire to look at the facts, but from a hard reality of uh, an appreciation of the realities of the situation. In other words, you're saying uh, don't discuss uh, the question of retaliation because it will, because, only because it will undermine. Yeah. I thought of that, and as I said, I put it to my friend and said, don't worry about that. You're not going to undermine it. You know? uh, so I'm not sure what to say in response to that. I feel like intellectually, you know, uh, well, I hate to be held responsible for, uh, for undermining Israeli deterrence. I don't think I will, but, um, but that's why I, I wanted to talk to these people at the Jewish Theological Seminary and find out, you know, what they thought about killing tens of millions of innocent civilians, you know. Yeah, irrespective of what might happen the day after, uh, since it hasn't happened, the official position and the semi-official position and any rumored position has got to be there will be retaliation right. from game theory point of view. Right. And so, you know, so we don't know what they're going to do, but we can be pretty sure that they're going to say they're going to retaliate, I would think. That, that's right, yeah. So, so then we shouldn't discuss it? No, I think, I think it's fine. I, I, I think we can even go one step further. If they're going to talk about retaliation, because it's necessary, uh, they perhaps want to fine-tune it a little bit more. Say that again? They want to fine-tune it a little bit more on perhaps not all the details, but that this retaliation following that same trend would have to be fairly specific. Right, and I, I think that that's, that's why I think, you know, the Russ Montani statement is important in game theory terms in that, you know, it requires a certain maybe escalation of the retaliatory threat. Maybe to include, I, I mean, I've seen this, and believe me, I don't want to be uh, seen as someone who's advocating this, but I've seen, you know, the destruction of Muslim holy places as one additional, you know, not just tit for tat, strike back at Tehran, but strike back at places that are dear to uh, to them and would uh, make them perhaps think twice. I don't know. I don't know if that will be efficacious or not. And there seems to be a consensus that uh, the sort of biggest uh, winner of the war in Iraq has been Iran, and that the war has strengthened the worst elements of the moves in Iran, partly because it allows them to play more of a nationalist role than they otherwise would have. And without this, there may have been more of a debate in Iran about uh, you know, how pro-Western or anti-Western to be. And first, I'm curious, do you share that view? But second, what does that say to you about the impact of the war in Iraq on the security of Israel? Um, well, the, to the first question, I, I'm not as well versed in Iranian politics and its fine-grained detail to uh, to know which faction has been strengthened. I would say, in some ways, it, uh, Iran as a whole has certainly been strengthened. Um, whether it it might perhaps work the other way, in the sense that they feel that uh, they're doing so well without uh, using nuclear weapons, that. Uh, you know, um, let's just proceed along this course, and uh, and eventually we'll push the Israelis into the sea without having to uh, risk nuclear retaliation. Um, 
So that's a possibility. What was the second part of your question? Oh, oh whether uh, the security of Israel is, uh, yeah, well, um, it's, I don't see how it's been enhanced. Certainly, Hezbollah's been strengthened uh, by uh, when uh, Iran has strengthened, Hamas has been strengthened, when Iran has strengthened. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I don't see many signs for optimism in that point. Uh, do you see, or you know, perhaps better, how do you see um, the state of Israel as part of the redemption of the Jewish people? You know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, it's a really good question, and I, you know, I grew up a non-observant Jew. You know, I uh, people ask me uh, uh, about this. I say, um, you know, my parents weren't. Uh, observance while monitoring my father and mother. Um, but uh, uh, it's, it's an easy way out, I know. But, um, uh, and, and I was not, you know, a Zionist particularly. Um, it seemed to me that uh, uh, I, I didn't consider closely these these questions until the end of the peace process, I think. I mean, I did, I spent 10 years writing a study of the, uh, historiography of Hitler, so it's certainly sensitive <coughs> to uh, Holocaust questions and the need for uh, a uh, safe haven for Jews, but it also, uh, rereading Roth's Operation Shylock uh, in the light of the Second Intifada and the end of the peace process made me question again whether or not concentrating Jews in one spot uh, was not the best idea for the redemption of the Jews or the saving of the Jews, but made it easier for the enemies of the Jews to finish the job. Uh, I, I mean, I hate to say that. Uh, I don't want to believe it. I, I want to believe that the, uh, the state of Israel will survive and thrive, etc., etc. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that. Uh, you know, I've, and I've grown, I've felt a stronger affinity for it. I think the more in peril it gets, because, you know, I feel that these people are part of my extended family, um, and I honor them as my father and mother, too, you know. Um, so I feel close to them, and I feel, in, you know, their peril. So uh, your question was, yeah, as part of, um, there, there is a sense of the uh, state of Israel as uh, part of the seeds of, the, of Jewish redemption, yeah. um, uh, theologically. There, yeah. There's also a sense of the state of Israel that uh, Jewish power beats Jewish weakness. Um, yeah. And, and, and those, two sort of, those two elements sort of dovetail, and, and obviously um, if, uh, if the state of Israel ultimately leads to the destruction of the Jews, you know, what does that say about, you know, all sorts of normative Jewish theology and Jewish understanding? Yeah, you know, in some ways, uh, I, I don't think it necessarily says anything bad about Jewish theology, about Zionism, about anything. I think it says something bad about the whole human race uh, and the, uh, the, the fact that it tolerates anti-Semitism. It stood by while the Holocaust took place. It's not doing much. To uh, to prevent the second Holocaust, um, and so 
you know, uh, I think the Jews are doing the best they can, you know, and Jewish power and uh, Jewish redemption in Israel, you know, in some ways are beautiful. Um, but there's a, a downside to it that we're seeing as well. And so I, I just don't know how to, uh, how to judge it, which I did. Um, the question raised by the gentleman over here about the age in the room, um, I, I, I think it leads to something, though. I mean, so many of us growing up encountered some kind of anti-Semitism, whether it was on the streets, trying to get into schools, get jobs, etc. Along the way, the death camps opened, and we found out how dramatic that could be. So we have lived lives that, uh, that at best, we're very wary about others and their intentions and feelings towards us. Fortunately, the next generation in America has grown up, of Jews I'm talking about, uh, grown up with much less anti-Semitism and maybe not experiencing it at all. Yes. And so some of them would look at this meeting and say, either we're a bunch of old fuddy-duddies frightened of our shadows, or saying uh, it's beyond belief and we refuse to believe it. I think it takes, and this is why I'm bringing this up, I think you've got to, that we all have to support educational programs, both within our own community, as well as with the whole American community and, and outside American community, that it happened and it can happen again. And, and uh, uh, just, just saying never again is not going to stop it from happening. Yeah, I, I know what you mean because, you know, I grew up, uh, you know, not experiencing really almost any anti-Semitism. The lead essay in uh, the anthology I uh, edited, Those uh, Forget the Past, um, uh, was by Jonathan Rosen and appeared first in the New York Times Magazine. His father was a, a, a Holocaust survivor, one of the kinder transport people uh, from Vienna. Um, and he talked about growing up and living this great American life. And then suddenly after September 11th, and, uh, reading about how, all, how half the world believed that the Jews caused 9-11, et cetera, et cetera. And, he, uh, and the way he felt like, oh no, I don't want to have to live my father's life. Um, but in fact, you know, if you look clearly at the situation, uh, maybe things haven't changed as much. You know, may, uh, I mean, if you say, if you look just at America, you know, things are fine. You know, there's not a lot of anti-Semitism. Klux Klan, neo-Nazis, not a big factor. Um, but, uh, you know, if you, uh, but that's an irresponsible, you know, and blind way to look at the world, you know, uh, and so, you know, it's not a pleasant th thing for, uh, for me, for Jonathan, for those of us who grew up not experiencing anti-Semitism or the cognizant during the death camps, whatever, to, uh, to have to, uh, uh, feel this way, but I think it's, you know, if you're living any kind of authentic life, you have to. Um, 
You know, I think uh, the Jews are so old as an identity, really the oldest thing on earth, maybe with China and the Hindus. And I think that in the way that there was no, to use a terrible euphemism, there was no real final solution. In the same way, there'll be no final redemption. And that history will go on, and the Jews will be here long after the United States, I think. It just, I mean, it's speculative. But now, if this is really a, a, um, something new under the sun, what would you do in the day after? It's a chance to maybe redefine it and say, well, we take our nukes and we renounce them. And we set a new moral identity. And we, uh, uh, in 5,000 years, will be remembered for doing that. <coughs> well, uh, you know, I respect you for the courage to say that. You know, uh, you, you know uh, I think uh, a lot of people would not want to sacrifice their children to the possibility of being remembered well 5,000 years from now. Um, and someone said that, uh, uh, you know, it's the Christians who say turn the other cheek, but it's the Jews who really have turned the other cheek. Um, and uh, so, you know, I. I'm glad you brought this up because it's a, it, it is a possibility. What you you know um, to renounce retaliation. I you know I just it's a kind of alien to me. Um, and uh, I mean you you know I'm at a moment where I I just really don't know what the right thing to do is. It's absurd. I know. Well, yeah, just. Uh, Going back to the Middle East, the crazy place where people don't have, you know, such a clean logic, and uh, the history is quite bloody. Uh, regarding nuclear weapons, Israel has a vague policy, as you might know, and many people here are aware of it. In other words, uh, we have a nuclear reactor, but we never said that we have nuclear ability. And you know, planes, boats, and the question is, and, and the question is, at the moment there are many nations in, in the in the area, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, um, Syria, that are trying to get their hands on nuclear weapons, either by buying it or making it by themselves. Saudi Arabia seems like they're trying to get it. Got it. But the question is. Is it, is it not the right time maybe that Israel should change its policy, you know, and maybe these okay. can put things in, in different order? Good question. And in fact, you know, there are indications that Israel is changing its policy. You know, the Olmert's famous slip of the tongue at the time of the Iranian Holocaust Deniers Conference in which uh, he, uh, uh, you know, Israel has this I think the official name of the policy is nuclear ambiguity. But Olmert said, uh, you know, uh, Iran shouldn't get nuclear weapons because Iran is an insane state, while the, the countries that have nuclear weapons like France, Russia, Israel, uh, the U.S. are sane countries, essentially. And then there was a big fuss because it seemed like he was admitting that uh, Israel had nuclear weapons, and uh, and the question was, was this deliberate? And I think it was actually. I think it was his way of saying to Iran, um, you know, uh, stop. You know, if you want to threaten us with nuclear weapons, 
let's just make, let's just drop the charade, or anyway, uh, drop one curtain uh, of, of, of ambiguity, uh, and uh, make it clear, I think he was speaking, not to the Iranian leadership, but to the Iranian people, uh, and saying, your leadership is putting you at risk of nuclear attack by Israel. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think it's a, um, it's a, it was an important development. Just a final two questions. First one. I would like to introduce Europe into this scenario, and I would like, wanted to respond to you saying that uh, Europe was, um, was a, a continent of highly educated people. I take issue with that, because to me, education includes uh, ethics. And I think Europeans were educated in the sense that they, they educated classes in their classes in Latin and Greek, but um, I don't think that women were educated in an ethical sense. And as far as Germany is concerned, I think they were highly trained. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I couldn't disagree with you. I mean, I, you know, I mean, uh, I, I mean uh, you know, I, I, I was taking, uh, you know, okay, civilization in quotes. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to add that nothing much has changed, that uh, in Germany right now the perception of Israel is negative in 77% of the population, 20% have a negative uh, perception of all Jews worldwide, and that Germany also is the most, um, the largest trading partner of Iran, including military hardware. I couldn't disagree with you. Oh, um, yeah, one of, one of the things that you mentioned in your book and talked about but haven't really talked about is the role. One of the things that you talked about in the book but haven't really talked about is the role of the Western media. And uh, I wondered, you know. Yes, I think, I think alas, the Western media has played a shameful role in uh, the process of delegitimizing the state of Israel through propagating lies like the uh, so called massacre at. Janine, uh, where words like Auschwitz, uh, comparisons of Israelis to Nazis were thrown around, mass murder, when this was totally untrue, proven to be untrue, and yet you still see references to that, and, uh, and the moral equivalence um, between, um, uh, it's shocking sometimes, uh, when uh, you will see, I mean, I know a, a writer I know, he's Jewish, you know, uh, I mean, I'm a liberal, he's a liberal. You know, I see him write uh, how uh, the number of civilians killed by Israelis equals or is greater than the number of civilians killed by Palestinians. It's as if the Israelis go out hunting and uh, uh, seeking to kill innocent civilians when the Palestinians actually do that with suicide bombs. They blow them up in <coughs> cafes and uh, where families are celebrating Passover, etc., etc. Uh, <coughs> civilians, Palestinian civilians killed by Israelis are not killed deliberately because they are Palestinians. Uh, there, is, uh, there, are, there are Palestinians killed, but uh, often because they're sheltering terrorists, they're in the way of attempts to dislodge terrorists, and the IDF uses every means, including uh, self-destructive means, to avoid uh, doing that. And yet, the media reports it as if it were the same thing. It's quite maddening. Thank you.
Uh, we're going to end here, but I just wanted to, to thank you. But um, I want to say I think it's a very sober uh, seminar that you presented us with. But I think it's, whether we agree or disagree, I think you raised issues that we need to we need to think about very clearly. And, and even though we may not be experts on nuclear deterrence and the nuclear threat, I think these are things that we should explore in the face of a very tangible genocidal anti-Semitism, which is, I argue, and stuff I'm doing a social movement that's very serious and very real. I think that we really need to begin to educate ourselves on what's happening in certain parts of the world. In our newsletter, Hamas Covenant will be featured, <coughs> and I think we need to really begin to read the book and be aware of what's going on. I think we need to uh, be able to read the first few minutes. Thank you. Thank you.